This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics, a leading manufacturer of high-quality birding optics and advocates for young birder programs, including the ABA's own Young Birder Camps. I can tell you from experience, you will never regret treating yourself to a great pair of binoculars, and Zeiss offers great quality at a price point that works for you. Plus, you're helping to support amazing experiences for young birders. That is a win-win. For more information, visit your local Zeiss dealer or go online to zeiss.com sportsoptics. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I have some exciting news to announce, especially if you are going to be at the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival in November. That's in Harlingen, Texas. And that news is that we are going to be doing another live show, a live recording of the American Birding Podcast at the festival in the big auditorium. It will be Saturday night, November 9th. It'll be free. It'll be fun. I promise you. Uh, one of the advantages of, of having done a live show in the past is that, one, I know that we can do it. And two, we know what works. So with a little bit more time to plan, we are going to make this a little more ambitious, a little, hopefully, you know, a little more fun for those who will be there. So my idea is to do a birding game show. It's something that the ABA has sort of done in the past. I have some a slightly different take on that. Uh, they will have some fun puzzles and games and some audience participation. And for that audience participation, it would be super great if the audience members who are participating were podcast listeners and fans. Obviously, we will take any warm body who is up for it, but I would love it if y'all were podcast people. And please do not be put off by the prospect of difficult questions and games. It, you think more uh, ask me another than Jeopardy, if you're familiar with that NPR podcast quiz. If you are interested and you're going to be at the festival in Texas this November, let me know at podcast at aba.org. You can be a, a participant, a guide, a trade show person. It does not matter. I, I think it will be fun. I, I know it will be fun. And I hope you'll help us out. On the show today, some thoughts about bird clubs, what works, what doesn't and why the monthly meetings are almost always the same, no matter where you go on the continent, maybe even the world. But first, the Atlantic hurricane season is off to a roaring and destructive start with the passage of Hurricane Dorian. And every year, meteorologists from your local TV station to the NOAA attempt to predict how bad it's going to be in the fall. But you know who gets it right? Veeries. The little russet catharist thrush with the laser gun song. And Dr. Christopher Heckscher of Delaware State University is here to explain this bizarre connection right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of August, first part of September 2019. It is stint season, and the last couple weeks have been very good for the old world shorebirds in the ABA area, with at least three little stints seen on St. Paul Island in Alaska so far. One redneck stint was also seen in Grays Harbor County, Washington this week. Florida also had the exciting find of three thick-billed vireos in Monroe County. One was even a juvenile bird, suggesting that maybe, just maybe... They were nesting in the area this year, unbeknownst to birders. One first record to report from Oklahoma, where a couch's kingbird was found in Comanche County. This species is far less prone to vagrancy than the very similar tropical kingbird, but there are a few records pretty far afield, and Oklahoma seems like a pretty natural place for the South Texas specialty to show up. It has been a remarkable last couple weeks for swallowtailed kites, with at least two turning up in Ohio. Oklahoma and Pennsylvania also had records, as did Missouri. 
British Columbia and Canada's fifth record of Hawaiian petrol was seen from a cruise ship in British Columbia waters, also noteworthy for the province and the country. A Guadalupe Merlet was a provincial and national third record seen within a few days of each other. This is just a little bit of the Rare Bird world for that period. For the whole list, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. You can also join our ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The 2019 Atlantic hurricane season is underway with a handful of storms already named. In the last couple of decades, human meteorologists have have gotten pretty good at predicting the strength and track of these storms in the Atlantic Basin, but still less good at predicting the severity of any individual season. Uh, But it turns out that Viries are actually very good at it. The, the ruddy catharist thrush with the swirly song is familiar to most of the continent's birders, and it was Dr. Christopher Heckscher of Delaware State University who made the connection using the behavior of Varies as a guide that he beat most, if not all, meteorologists last year in accurately predicting the hurricane season. He's with me to talk about maybe replacing meteorologists with ornithologists. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, sure, no problem. Glad to talk to you. Yeah, I, I I probably shouldn't say it's like a competition, but it, I mean it's obviously not. But you you totally won last year, didn't you? You you were accurately predicted the number of hurricanes uh, that were going to hit the Atlantic last year using the behavior of thrushes. Yeah, I got pretty lucky because uh, I published my paper uh, in July of last year, and the first year I was able to make predictions that uh, kind of hit a home run with it. Um, nice. The uh, meteorologists were calling for uh, a below average season, and the very data that I was looking at was suggesting that we would have an above average season, and it ended up being above average. So that was nice to have that as my first trial run. Yeah, right off um, the bat. Yep. <laughs> so what what were you studying before you made the connection between varies and hurricanes? Well, I've, I've been studying the very for a long time, um, 20 years now, really. Uh, actually, this was my this year was my 21st year. Um, so I've been monitoring a population in White Clay Creek State Park, which is uh, on the northern tip of uh, Delaware at the Pennsylvania line there. And um, I've been color banding these birds since 1998, um, gathering information about individuals every summer, it's nest searching, monitoring nests. And my my initial interest was looking at at nest site selection for the species. That's what I did for my master's work at University of Delaware. And uh, I then moved directly into uh, a a PhD program there. I had a a population uh, color marked already out in the park. Uh, I didn't want to walk away from that because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of valuable data you can get from tagging individuals and keeping track of them. So then I did my PhD dissertation research on vocal communication. And then I kind of drifted into the geolocator craze, which came around, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, about five, 10 years ago. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I've been, you know, kind of a generalist in terms of what I've been looking at with the Viries, but my real interest is just trying to figure out these birds. They're really fascinating to watch. They're very social. Um, they winter, you know, down in uh, the southern Amazon basin in Brazil, and they come up to North America to breed. So the whole migratory story there, I'm fascinated with that. Um, and then it kind of just by accident kind of got into this hurricane stuff. Yeah. So what, how did you first notice that there was this connection between what the varies were doing in the breeding season and what was happening the following fall with tropical storms in the Atlantic? Yeah. Like I said, it was kind of accidental. Um, 
having worked with this population for a long time, I'm, you know, I'm really familiar with, uh, you know, how these birds, uh, where they nest and their timing, seasonal timing and all that stuff. And, um, I noticed that in some years the birds stopped nesting earlier than in others. So I would be actually tracking individual females and, uh, they would, uh, some of the females would nest later in the year in one year. And then the following year they would shut down earlier and, and go to molt a little bit earlier uh, so it, at first I was very alarmed by this because I thought, you know, why are these birds, stop, why are they short stopping their nesting season in some years? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they should be, you know, maximizing their opportunity to bring off young. And it was kind of uh, worrying me. I didn't know if, you know, the food supply and this forest fragment I was working in was, was becoming worse or, you know, if it, it was something detrimental in the environment that was causing them to shut down early. Um, maybe a contaminant or something that was affecting hormones or something of that sort. But I published a, a paper uh, in 2017 in the AUK, which um, showed that the timing of their breeding season had a significant effect on what time they arrived on the wintering ground in South America the following uh, winter. Mm -hmm. um, and it just suddenly occurred to me, I, you know, I flipped it around in my mind. I started to think, what, what would be the advantage of malting earlier in some years rather than uh, later in, in some years, instead of, instead of thinking, you know, what's going wrong, what maybe what's going right. And it just yeah. occurred to me to look at, you know, tropical storms, because I, I already knew that the breeding season significantly affected their southbound migration in the fall, the timing of it. And mm -hmm. uh, so I asked, I asked the question to myself, you know, what would be the advantage of migrating earlier? or having more time to prepare for migration. And it just occurred to me to look at tropical storm activity on their migratory route as they headed to South America following years in which, you know, they, they either ended early or, or kept going a little bit later. And, uh, I, I did the, uh, did the statistics and, uh, actually I was pretty surprised to see that there was huh. a, there was a close correlation there. Yeah. It's, it's amazing the ways in which tropical storms can kind of affect migrating birds, you know, Wimbrel, for instance, are like famous for just kind of barreling right into the storm and kind of using it to slingshot. But, you know, birds like passerines, they really have to be much more careful. How do you think they're able to sort of predict whether it's going to be a particularly good, a particular stormy year? Do you, it seems like kind of an out of the blue connection. Is, is there some sort of biomechanical switch that's kind of going off in their head that says, you know, now's the time to go? Well, that's the million dollar question. And that's what everybody wants to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I have really, I don't have any good, uh, handle on that. That's uh, something I'd really love to, you know, do some more research on. It, it, it is odd because they, um, the heart of their nesting season is really May and, and early right. June. Yeah. So if they're going to shut down early, they need to know by May or June. So the, you know, mm -hmm. the big question you're asking is, you know, how do they know by May what's going to happen the following fall? Yeah, what's going to happen I, in like August? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, and I don't really know. I have kind of speculated maybe it's something that's going on in South America on the wintering grounds, the mm -hmm. preceding winter. Oh, yeah. um, some of the rain, uh, the precipitation patterns in South America are kind of loosely related to the following hurricane season because they're dependent on, you know, El Nino and La Nina cycles. Huh. So my best guess right now is that they're picking up you know, they're using some cue on the wintering grounds that prepares them for the breeding season in such a way that, you know, hormonally they're going to be malting at a certain time. You know, I don't know if it's, it's got to be something physiological, you know, the bird's mm -hmm. not sitting around 
with a pencil figuring out what they're going to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably something that the bird, you know, the bird itself, the individuals are unaware of it, but it's probably something hormonal that has to do with physiology, maybe fruit production on the wintering grounds. But at this point, you know, anybody could, it's anybody's best guess at this point. In a normal year, I'd say that, you know, a year that does not have a lot of hurricanes, how long do they breed? How long into the breeding season are they still producing young? So um, normally they, at least at my study site, and it's going to vary a little bit with uh, mm-hmm. latitude, but at my study site, they're pretty much done with the breeding season by mid-July. Um, mm-hmm. So they arrive around the last week of April, they set up their territories and they get to nesting. And the various single brooded species, so it's only mm. going to bring off one clutch a year, and then it's going to hmm. go molt and get ready for migration. So they're they're nesting in May. If they if they bring off a net, uh, bring off a, a clutch in late May, um, you know, then they'll go then they'll go to molt. So it's the mm-hmm. birds that are unsuccessful early that I started to pay attention to, which showed mm-hmm. me that you know those are the birds that are continuing to try to renest, and then they're they're going some years right. later into into okay. the into the summer. Um, but mostly by mid July, they're done nesting. 2015 was a really interesting year because, uh, it was a very, uh, we had a very, uh, mild hurricane season and the summer before Mm -hmm. they, I had nests into late July. Um, so, you know, apparently, um, it depends on, on, uh, what's likely to happen during fall migration. That's what's constraining their breeding, um, while they're on the breeding grounds. And what is their, what is their route? For fall migration, do they are they one of the species that hits the coast and kind of takes off over the ocean and goes south, or do they kind of work their way down North America? Uh, the tracking that I've done with the geolocators um, shows that most of these birds are likely moving down the coastal plain um, from Delaware. They'll move south on the coastal plain down through you know Virginia, Maryland, um, North Carolina, South Carolina. And then kind of move over a little bit westward and head into like uh, Louisiana and maybe even Mississippi um, and then cross the Gulf. Okay. And then cross the Caribbean Sea and then into South America. Now, a lot of birds will cross the Gulf and then go to the Yucatan Peninsula and then down through Central America too. Mm-hmm. And it could be that, you know, which route they pick might have something to do with the weather as well. Yeah. Climate change seems like this, you know, giant black box that impacts these behaviors. You know, one of the effects that we've always sort of heard about is that, you know, as the global climate increases, we may see an increase in the frequency or the severity of tropical storms. Do do you worry about what that might do to these varies if every year ends up being a heavy storm year? Yeah, I really do. So I think there that there's two things to worry about here. One is actual mortality on migration. Um, mm-hmm. if you're a bird crossing the Gulf and suddenly you hit a hurricane, uh, that's really bad news for you. Um, the other thing is, which is kind of what you're alluding to is that, you know, if they have shorter nesting seasons, Mm -hmm. you know, that could over a long term affect, um, their, uh, you know, recruitment of young back into the population and their productivity in, in a given year. So, um, there's two things going on here that, that I'm concerned about. One is mortality on migration. If we have bigger and, and more frequent storms, but then, just as you said, you know, if the breeding season is shortened by severe weather, uh, the propensity for severe weather on migration, then uh, it's possible that they're on average over time, they'd be producing fewer young if we have Mm -hmm. more and more seasons where there's uh, bad tropical weather on migration. Do you know if this behavior is limited to those very that are nesting sort of in the 
I don't know, Northern Delaware, Pennsylvania area, or if it is something that is shared by Viri that are nesting, you know, throughout the sort of boreal zone. I guess it's not quite boreal zone, near boreal, near boreal zone, right. uh, further west on the continent. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question, and it would be terrific if we could, you know, get some folks in, in other places that have data on Viri's to take a look we at the data. need more Catharist thrush researchers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. Uh, all I can say is that this is what I found at my study site. I will mm -hmm. say that some of my colleagues have tracked Viri's from British Columbia, and they tend to take the same route south as our Delaware Viri's do once they get hmm. to um, the southeastern United States. So those birds will yeah. actually migrate east. Really? So they go southeast and, south. and cross the continent? Yes. Oh, man, I didn't know that. Wow. Yes, they do. That's, a, so, that's the long way. <laughs> um, so my best guess is, you know, if, if what's affecting these Viri's in Delaware is happening once they get to the Gulf Coast, it's likely mm -hmm. that it's affecting Viri's right. across the range. Yeah. Is this a like a catharist thrush behavior, or do you think that this is something that might be mirrored in other long distance migrants that sort of follow similar routes? Cause there's a, there's a number of them. Well, um, I think if you were going to look for this behavior in another species, you'd want to mm -hmm. pick a species that crosses, goes as far as South America. So they're crossing both the Gulf yeah. potentially in the Caribbean sea. So Viri's are single brooded. And I believe now pretty firmly that the reason they're single brooded is because their breeding season is constrained by this tropical this tropical weather that we're talking hmm. about. Oh, so, okay. That's interesting. So it's like a chicken and egg question. Which came first? The uh, adaptation to, you know, dealing with tropical storms or or the tropical storms first and the beery had to uh, Yeah, had probably to the latter, I would guess. But um, if I were going to look for this yeah. behavior, I'd pick a, a species that was single brooded that also, you know, goes down to South America. But it would be nice if we could confirm this in another species. Yeah. This is not necessarily related to the tropical storm, but a do you think that the you, you mentioned the Viri's breed in uh, the southern Amazon, which unfortunately is going through uh, serious yeah. forest fires uh, currently? Um, do, you, do you see a lot of the habitat that the Viri's are using affected by these by these fires? Uh, you know what? I've been really scared to look, <laughs> to be honest, with, <laughs> yeah, in the last I week don't or blame two. You. Um, but the, uh, I will say that the geolocator we've tracked these Viri's with the geolocators, and the geolocator data is the resolution is not good enough to associate the birds with a particular habitat type. However, right, I have okay. tracked them with GPS tags. Um, I have a handful of birds that I've gotten GPS data from in South America, and it looks like mm -hmm. they're using really dry, um, kind of xeric-type environments down there. Um, I'm working on a paper now to describe <laughs> this. Could go yeah. either way, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I I don't have a, a, enough birds to, to, to look specifically at those individuals and see where they're nesting in relation to mm -hmm. fires, but... I would bet. I would bet that uh, that if we have a lot of uh, wildfires in that region, that um, it could potentially, over time, at least, affect Viri's. And it, and these fi the fires that most people are concerned about are actually right in that in that wintering area. So. Yeah, because they they go a long ways. And do they are they specific to certain areas in their wintering grounds, or do they move around a little bit? So that's a really another really interesting um, discovery I made. So. Uh, the Viri's will go down to South America. They'll go south of the Amazon basin, um, on the southern, most of them on the southern edge of the Amazon basin down there. And they'll, they'll winter for a couple of months, and then they'll move um, north across mm -hmm. the Amazon to the northern Amazon basin. So they actually have two separate wintering sites. They have one uh, south of the Amazon and one north of the Amazon. 
Um, so they do like a mid-season, what we call, I refer to as an intertropical migration. Um, uh-huh. So they actually have three migrations, a fall migration, an intertropical migration, wow. and then a spring migration. Wow, that's a really fascinating yeah, study species. Yeah. You know, you know, wood thrush, you know, they, they go down to Central America and they sort of stay on a territory. Uh, they hold like a territory like they do in, in the breeding grounds, a different genus, of course. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting. I guess you, the, the geolocator data that you don't have isn't refined enough to see whether Viri are doing that too. But um, I don't know if, any, if there's been any research on other catharist thrushes that uh, suggest that they might do something similar. But uh, Yeah, I think, well, great cheek thrush, we've got some really very preliminary data that show that they also move. Um, now they okay. don't, uh, they don't hmm. go as far South in general as the Viries do. Um, but it looks like they do like an East West movement instead of a North South movement like the Viri does. But, uh, that's hmm. still, you know, wow. that's, we have like two birds that have done something like that. So, um, we're not, not ready to, to say that that's what's going on for all birds. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But, but they moving around is a, another really interesting thing because, you know, for, most of our our lives thinking about these birds, we've assumed that they go down to South America or Central America and they sit on a right. territory until they move north. And the Viries are actually moving around a lot. That's really oh, and it sort of makes sense. You know, we they they do have a very long migration. They're built to like travel long distances. You know, that's this makes sense that they would take advantage of that adaptation. You know, the long wings, the ability to fly long ways. Uh, you know, instead of just sitting sitting put, it's kind of yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so what did the Viries tell you about the 2019 hurricane season? Okay, um, so that's that's what everybody wants to know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I did post um, on my Twitter feed my prediction. So this year was a little bit uh, difficult because I I had to leave mid season for three weeks. So I didn't get uh, the data that I'm u- mm-hmm. that I've been accustomed to getting on these birds. So um, I have to I have a kind of a disclaimer saying that my prediction for this year is unofficial <laughs> and. Um, I'm going to leave it out when I do future, uh, runs of the data, but, uh, looking at the data that I did collect, my best guess was that we could expect uh, a slightly above average season, Mm -hmm. which is pretty close. Unlike 2018, it's pretty close to what the meteorologists are also saying. Uh, most of them were saying an average season, a couple, I think of the, of the, of the uh, groups were saying a, a slightly above average season and the very data using my best guess would be for an above average season, but slightly so. So not as bad as last year. Mm-hmm. Do you find that meteorologists in general are sort of really interested in these other sort of, uh, I don't know, non-traditional ways of determining determining long-term weather forecasts? Uh, not too much. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, <laughs> They have their ways and they're sticking with them. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I, I don't think they take, they take, you know, using a bird to, to, to predict these things uh, very seriously yet. Uh, you know, hopefully yeah. over time I can show them it's something to look at. But my uh, one of the things I, I did was I published my data in a uh, in a journal uh, specifically so that meteorologists might see it because I think it, mm-hmm. I think that what they should be looking at, what they should be paying attention to, is trying to figure out what the birds are using because whatever they're using yeah. as a cue is really good and it's just about as good as their models, if not better. And um, they could be using a meteorological cue, environmental cue that meteorologists don't yet know about. I don't think that's totally mm-hmm. impossible. So, you know, yeah. if we're trying to refine our models continually over time to get the best long range model, why not take a look at what the Viries might be using um, and see if there's something that's going on, you know, on their migration route or in South America mm-hmm. that meteorologists could then, you know, take a closer look at. 
Dr. Christopher Heckscher is an environmental scientist at Delaware State University. His work on Varies continues. You can find him on Twitter at Mad Thrush. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thanks for joining me. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My colleague and Burning Magazine editor and regular podcast guest Ted Floyd wrote several years ago on the ABA blog about bird clubs and how they're almost always the same wherever you go in the ABA area and probably the planet. This was a riff on an even older Pete Dunn essay about bird clubs and bird club meetings, especially you know how they're always the same. Ted means this to be a compliment, the familiarity of bird club meetings. And I, and I don't mean it as a pejorative from my point. There's, there's absolutely a comfort to that familiarity. I've given talks at a lot of bird clubs in my region, and they are almost always the same. You meet in the all-purpose room of a church or a meeting room at a local nature center or a museum or a library. You show up, there are snacks, you mill around for a bit, then the meeting starts. The president gives an often short, sometimes very long, welcoming intro, sometimes the announcement of interesting birds or an acknowledgement of new faces. Then the guest, often a local birder with a PowerPoint presentation, maybe it's someone from a little further away, gives a talk about a recent trip or how to use eBird or the butterflies of your state or province. I've heard them all. I've even given quite a few. It lasts 45 minutes to an hour. There are questions. Everybody goes home and does it again the next month. And they work. People enjoy them. But You know, so often I've heard local bird clubs sort of bemoan the lack of participation from younger people. And and by that, I don't just mean teenagers and college-aged birders, but often young professionals with families. And, And part of that is because that time in people's lives can absolutely be hectic. You're often busy with a profession. You are frequently raising young children. It can be hard to get out for even one night a month to listen to you know, yet another PowerPoint slide presentation. And I say that as someone whose hard drive is full of PowerPoint slide presentations on various bird topics. But there's a very 20th century feel to it all. Heck, you know, maybe even a 19th century feel, as some of these organizations have been around for more than 100 years. And yet, you know, the bird club meeting has not changed a lot in that time. Simply replace the PowerPoint with slideshows or even just a person standing behind a daze in front of an audience and lecturing. I've often wondered what it is that needs to be done to kind of break out of this static system. And last month, I attended the, the first meeting of the D-Town Bird Club in Durham, North Carolina. The idea being that uh, there was an incredibly keen, relatively newer birder in the area and he was not finding what he was looking for in the other local bird clubs in the area. So he decided to start a new one. You know, without a president or minutes or a schedule, he provided the food himself, and it must be said, the drink. And a fair number of people came out to this beautiful space in a Durham high-rise to see a presentation by ABA President Jeff Gordon. And it got me thinking, you know, why don't we see more of this? I have a group of younger graduate student, young professional friends that I get together with uh, most months to meet at a local bar and talk birds because that's what we talk about when we're together. Uh, You know, there's no agenda. There's often no announcement. We make plans the night before or something like that. And, And we're just talking about birds. But what would it take to talk a bar owner or a manager into, you know, plugging my laptop into one of those big screen TVs showing the ball game and giving a, you know, a brief talk there? 
Uh, you know, bars already do trivia nights. Why not bird nights? You know, people walk in, they have a drink, they learn something about a hobby they might not have thought a lot about before. Live streaming now is as easy as a webcam and a Facebook account. Why aren't more bird clubs streaming their meetings live on their accounts? You never know who you're going to reach. You might pick up someone who comes in person to the next bird club meeting. I, I have tossed around the idea in my head of sort of hosting a virtual bird club on the ABA, on the ABA's Facebook account, where we can sort of live broadcast a bird talk from anyone through the ABA's account. You know, if you're interested in being my guinea pig for that, please let me know, by the way. I am increasingly of the opinion that we need to be more open about being where the people are and not just where the bird people are. And I know that you know, birders on the whole are sort of generally quieter people, but we do a lot of cool stuff. We go to amazing places. We see unbelievable things and we know incredible facts. And I know there are a lot of people out there who would eat that stuff up even if they don't know it yet. I should point out, of course, that I have not done any of this yet. So take my encouragement with a bit of a grain of salt. But... I would be open to giving a talk at a bar bird night if I were invited. My hard drive is full of PowerPoint presentations for you to choose from. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You've heard me say it before, but we are a membership organization, and we would love it if you joined. Membership in the ABA helps support this and the many other free resources we provide to the birding community. You can learn more about membership at aba.org slash join or take a look at our e-membership at aba.org slash e-member. I want to make a special shout out to Bobby Reed of Galleon, Ohio, and Ross Bullington and Karina Lee of Big Sky, Montana. They joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much, Bobby, Ross, and Karina for that. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He notes that if varies can teach us about meteorology, there, there might be other birds with lessons to impart. For instance, would you be interested in learning about long-term saving from an acorn woodpecker? Technical production is from John Lowry. Instead of those Rosetta Stone language learning tapes, those are such a ripoff, he prefers to go to the source, Northern Mockingbird. They are a polyglottus after all. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley with all of the trendy fitness dance classes around these days. They wonder why people just can't take a class with a video of a spotted sandpiper or an American dipper. Maybe call it Plumba. That's my idea. Don't take it. I'm going to trademark it. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We're taking our tips for nonprofit management from Bowerbirds because they're you know so precise about preparing their bowers, so good at the little things. But now the entire office is covered in blue, and we're not sure where to go from here. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>